Well, thank you so much, Father, this morning for this good reminder that you love us. You have not left us alone, that you provided a Savior for us, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our sin-bearer, providing as well a model for living that we can walk in the light, very aware, Father, of the dirty, dark, sinful world in which we live today. So as we open our Bibles this morning, challenge our hearts, help us to recognize that you are a holy God and that you will only tolerate sin for so long. Help us to be motivated to share your love to a lost and dying world as well. Encourage us, challenge us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. I was uh, somewhere in my truck driving, I can't remember where, doesn't matter, and I was listening to the radio and Dr. Dobson came on with his Focus on the Family program. I love Dr. Dobson, so thankful for him, taking such a stand for righteousness through the years and been such a voice for the family been a uniter of the church in an appropriate way, I think, in many ways. I was struck by his heart this particular morning, maybe it was Thursday morning, because he was weeping. He was weeping over his heart burden for our country, and for our families, and for the direction that it seems that we're heading as a, as a people. He had a pastor from Southern California as a guest, and they were talking about the Proposition 8 uh, vote that's coming up Tuesday in California where they're trying to preserve marriage as for man and woman only. It's being fought tooth and nail. Some of these dear pastors have been fasting for 40 days, praying. They had a huge prayer rally yesterday that Dr. Dobson was invited to, and uh, they're just seeking God's face. and. God's protection from these matters. Some of them have had their windows broken and things like that as the opposition is strong. And I thought it was interesting that one of the comments that was made that in the past year or so, since the legalization of gay marriage there, there have been 11,000 marriages this year from people from all across the country going to California, having their um, adjudicators perform in and religious leaders perform these pagan marriages and they're going back home to states all across the country and it's a strategy and they've been told now to wait until after the election this Tuesday because if they can um, get this passed to where marriage no longer is uh, just for a man and a woman then and, and there's other strategies but then they want these folks to go to the courts in their own states and press their plea and try to force the precedent of California upon the other states and use that. And you know that we often have a wave of response from the West Coast across our country on a number of these issues. Dr. Dobson's heart was heavy. As he talked to these pastors, they're very burdened for what they see and what's happening there. It was amplified and magnified by the one story that they told a few weeks ago, and you now know the infamous uh, mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, 
performed a same-sex marriage on the courthouse steps there in San Francisco. But what was so remarkable about the story was that 18 first graders and their teacher were there on the courthouse steps to witness it. And the teacher said that it was a great opportunity for a teachable moment on their field trip. It's no wonder that Dr. Dobson is weeping. I don't need to tell too many stories to illustrate what's happened in, say, the last 50 years in our culture and in our country. We've certainly been on a downtrend morally. We've certainly seen the acceptability of sin become commonplace in our country to the degree that it's very acceptable to be highly entertained by horribly sinful behaviors and it's tolerated across the country and quite remarkable, I think, to see the trend in our country. I was thinking, even in preparation for this introduction, how you can you remember the controversy when I was a little boy in, uh, in the early 60s about Elvis the pelvis and, and Ed Sullivan showing him below his neck, you know, as he performed on stage to where my buddies in high school would tell me about what happened at Wing Stadium in Kalamazoo at the Alice Cooper concert and the, the horrible, horrendous, horrific behaviors that went on there under the big cloud of marijuana smoke in the stadium. And I won't even say the things that he did. They're despicable. And how it is cheered and people pay big money. And, and there we are. And Dr. Dobson continues to weep. I kind of ask myself a little bit, I wonder why I don't weep more. Maybe I'm a frog in the kettle. I get a little bit angry sometimes. and I get a little worried. But I think it's interesting as we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 that not only does Dr. Dobson weep about our culture today, but I think that our Heavenly Father weeps We need to worry about the fact that God is weeping for us, but we also need to worry about the fact that there comes a point in time when God says, that's it. And in his disgust, God says, the wages of this sin is now death. In Genesis chapter 6, as we're making our way through this amazing book, I've enjoyed the challenge to my own life and just been amazed really at the relevance to our own culture today and the things that we deal with and the things that we see around us every week. Um, Things hit me just like that's exactly how it is. We're now entering chapter six and I knew we would have limited time this morning because of our communion time, but I'd like to jump in and, and tackle the first seven verses. We'll back up and review them next week as well. Next week, I hope to talk about, have a message about how to live righteously in a pagan world as we begin to really look at Noah and what kind of a man he was, I want to encourage you in a very practical way that we can live righteously in this godless present age today. I hope you'll be here and be encouraged by that. But this is really interesting stuff. And some of you might think when we turn to Genesis chapter 6, you kind of know your Bible enough to know that, you know, yeah, we've had creation and then we've had the fall in chapter 3. We've had the genealogies that we've dealt with. Now chapter 6 is going to be the story of... Noah, right? And the flood. 
And it's pretty familiar to us. It's very common. Some of you have decorated your baby's nurseries with Noah and the flood, haven't you? And uh, his little animals and his arcs and his, the rainbow and it's just nice and gives you fuzzy good feeling and it's nice and you have the little stuffed animals on the bed and the little throw covers that match the wallpaper and it's great stuff. Do you know you have to realize that Genesis chapter 6 is one of the most horrific stories in all of the Bible. It's a horrible story. It was a horrible time If Dr. Dobson had cause to weep today, there was cause for weeping in Noah's day as well. The problem was there wasn't anybody crying about it. It's interesting, the downgrade that progressed and what happens through the life of Noah. And we're just going to begin here this morning and challenge ourselves with uh, laying a foundation for this important passage. Let's read the first seven verses as our text this morning. It takes the the next few minutes to, to break them down because once again... Two themes occur. I don't know if it's a theme or not, but one thing that occurs is we have questions about the text. What in the world is this all about? And there's some very interesting concepts presented. But once again, though, we have this theme of sin and the results of the fall now as we have this entropy setting in and this, this tsunami of sin coming upon all men and what happens in the results of their homes, their families, their culture, their society, to the degree that it's just overwhelming. And so I don't want to be negative today. And even in the the story of man's sinfulness, what we have in the book of Genesis, though, of course, is we will begin to see, though, God's preparation for sending Messiah because man can't save himself. And you know what? Until you realize you can't save yourself... You won't get on the boat. And so when Messiah comes, you won't recognize him if you don't know you need a Messiah. And one of the things Genesis does is it shows us how bad we really are. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. He goes, Moses does in his historical account, transitions right out of these genealogical passage, and then very abruptly in a sense, he says, When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. And they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Verse 5, And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. We'll stop right there at great verse 8, that three-letter word, but, but Noah found grace. Praise God. What an interesting passage this is, and it lays the, work, the groundwork for what God is going to do in this passage. As God has exhausted his grace, in a sense, the timeline has come to an end. And what a warning passage it is as well. I'd like to break this passage down into three ways, three observations about a society that's gone amok. 
Number one, we see the pornification of the society or the culture. The pornification, I called it. Number two, we have the demonization of the society. And number three, we will see the complete degradation of society. How's that for getting built up and coming to church and encouraged, huh? The pornification of a society, the demonization of this society, and the complete degradation of the society. Well, it even gets worse because what we end with is the wrath of God in his disgust. And it's kind of a wake-up call for us this morning. Let's take a look at the passage, and in so doing, we want to observe what's happening in this culture, what's happening around the world. Remember, uh, we've done a little bit of a math uh, speculative math problem, and we were suggesting, some Bible students are suggesting that it's possible, highly possible, that there could be as many as 7 billion people on the earth uh, about this time, or in the next 100 years, the, the exponential growth of the population is going to get to where there could be that many. It's not difficult to imagine that the population of the earth has reached that high of a number. And when we begin to read the passage, it doesn't look that dramatic. It looks kind of normal. It has kind of a normal feel to it. When men, verse 1, began to increase in number on the earth, okay, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That seems normal. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. And if a peripheral reading, just a glance down and you kind of read it, well, that's okay. Yeah, ever since Noah's flood time, men look at women, think they're beautiful, marry them, life goes on, it's all good. But when you recognize the context and you recognize that there is a, a crescendo here of evil that is getting in the eyes of God to the degree that in just a few verses he's going to say, it's, a, it's come up to me like a stench in my nostrils and stand back because I'm going to destroy everything, even the animals that happen to be living at the same time as these wretched, sinful people you recognize that there must be more going on in the society than what Moses has informed us of here. And when we look at it again, we can kind of see it. And, and this is why I've stated number one is we recognize the pornification of a culture or society. Men began to increase, okay, fill the earth, that's good. And daughters were born to them, that's good too, all right, sons and daughters. But then we have this interesting phrase that's introduced, the sons of God, all right? Now, who's that? At first, you might say, well, that's just like men. That's just men. God, you know, we're the sons of God. People are the sons of children of God. Everybody says that. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. I want you to notice that this culture, it is on a downgrade because God says, my spirit is not going to contend with these people much longer. It's debatable. Bible students debate then whether he established the fact that from now on, man is only going to live about a 120-year earth span, uh, lifespan. That's what I suggested last week. I kind of lean that way. It's also possible that, that the point was there's only going to be 120 more years before I send this flood. And that's all the longer I'm going to put up with this people. And then that's it. The hammer comes down. And, and maybe both are kind of true because you can build a case that Gradually, the age span and lifespan of, of people got to be about, about 120 years for a while after the flood. That's related to the chapter 5 genealogy where we're so curious about those long lifespans that we talked about last week. But notice that this verse 2, you can kind of see when you look at it, the sons of God saw. 
It became a visually oriented society, very visual, saw that they were beautiful. As I look at that and as I meditate on that, it, it, it begins to smack of a lustful kind of look, doesn't it? And they married whoever they wanted to marry. And then when you realize they're just going for the women is what they're doing. It's like, well, it's not a very wholesome thing after all, is it? And so here we have this situation where it's become a very visually oriented culture and it's very much a, a sinful kind of thing that's outside of the plan of God. I was thinking about that phrase where it says, and they married any of them that they wanted. I was thinking about marriage in Hollywood today. That's kind of what it made me think of. Well, they marry, don't they? Yeah, they marry all the time, and they marry whoever they want. And it's also a very visual-oriented world, isn't it? That the media has propagated through movies, television, magazines, and our culture has caught on, and we've swallowed it up hook, line, and sinker, haven't we? To where everything about us is very visual, it's very superficial, it has nothing to do with reality, it has everything to do with image, It's a very shallow, hollow thing. And I think that's the kind of culture that's happening here to where the only thing that matters was their image and their own sensual pleasure and these relationships that they were involved in. It's interesting that he uses this phrase, the sons of God. And that raises a curious question. And this is actually one of the most debated passages of scripture in the whole Bible. What does this mean? Well, today's your lucky day. I'm going to tell you what it means. Not really. I'm not sure what it means, but I can tell you what I've concluded in my thinking, um, what I think it means. Notice how he uses this again. And when we read on, okay, in verse 3, he says, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when, there it is again, the sons of God went to the daughters of men. Okay, now you can see this. There's a difference there. These sons of God are not normal humans, or maybe they're not humans at all. And went to the daughters of men and had children by them, and then they were these giants, is the word, or heroes of old, strong men, powerful. There was like this race of people that became huge. The word Nephilim is used one other time in our Bibles in in Numbers, When the children of Israel are to enter into the promised land, do you remember the story part where Joshua and Caleb and the 10 spies, so 12 of them together, went to explore the land? Remember, the grapes were so big and stuff, they carried them back on a pole. It was a a land filled and flowing with fruit and honey, milk and honey. It was just a beautiful country. But when they came back, Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. It's God's promised land. Let's take it. And do you remember what the other 10 said? Remember two were for it and 10 were against it. And they mocked them, Joshua and Caleb. And remember what their argument was? We can't go in there. The Nephilim are there. The giants are there. We're like grasshoppers. They will kill us. Joshua and Caleb thought if it was of God and they were God's people and God said they could do it, who were they to stand in the way? I don't think there's any genetic connection between the two because it would have had to go through Noah's line and I don't think that Noah was connected to these Nephilim and everybody else was wiped off the face of the earth as we're going to see in the next week or so in our messages. Not real sure about that word. It means fallen ones. 
And this idea of the sons of God, that's an interesting phrase, how it was translated from the Hebrew. And we might find it helpful because in our text, as we look at our Bibles in this text, we don't really get an explanation, do we? And so we can speculate, and Bible students do speculate, and they've built, some people have built a case for the fact that because there was no daughters mentioned in the chapter 4 lineage of Cain, and only sons and daughters were mentioned in the Seth line in chapter 5, that the daughters of men must have been the Sethite daughters, and that these sons of God somehow was the line of Cain, and that these wicked men came on these beautiful women and corrupted the godly women and so forth, And now you're just speculating. It doesn't say that in the text. You could theorize, and possibly there was something to that. I personally don't don't believe that that's a valid explanation. So if the text doesn't tell us, we have only two other options. A, look in other parts of the Bible and see if there's any clues there, or B, just leave it alone and take it for what it is. We're going to do both this morning, okay? Let's go to Job real quick, and let me show you something in Job chapter 1. Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Job chapter 1, this old book. Bible scholars believe that this is probably the first book that was put in writing of our Bibles. And I want you to see that when we look in our Bibles at other passages, there's about five times that this Hebrew phrase is translated sons of God, that it's translated in another way. And look what it is. In Job chapter 1, verse 6 is an illustration of it. The exact Hebrew word. It's two words in Hebrew. And notice what it says in Job 1, 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This Hebrew word that's translated in Genesis 6 as sons of God is the exact same word that is translated in Job 1.6 as angels. He does it again the exact same way in chapter 2, verse 1. You can see it there just by turning the page. On another day, the angels came to present themselves. It's the Hebrew word sons of God. I even have a footnote in my Bible, and I have a very uh, unannotated Bible here. I just have a large print edition of the NIV with almost no notes in it. Um, and, but it did notate with a little letter down at the bottom in the Hebrew, sons of God, in the Job passage. It does it again in chapter 38, uh, uh, verse 7. It does it in the book of Daniel, and it does it in uh, somewhere else. I forgot, Psalms, in, in the book of Psalms. There's a psalm where it uses the exact same phrase and translates it angel. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, and let me tell you what I imagine is happening here. And I wouldn't get my head cut off for it, but I think it makes sense by just building a case on that word, the understanding of that word, sons of God, is a word translated angels. It doesn't give us enough information to really see what's happening here, but somehow, verse 2, the sons of God, or you could translate it angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. The next thing that we speculate about, and you can't prove it from the text either, but is when you hit verse 4 and he says, the Nephilim, some, not all Bible translators and, and students, will speculate or suggest that the Nephilim or these giants or this special race of powerful, wicked people, evidently, were the offspring of this relationship of angels and women. And you say, wait a minute. Jesus said in Matthew that 
angels in heaven don't marry and give in marriage. So they must be sexless. Well, in the Bible, angels are always represented as male, aren't they? And it doesn't say that they're sexless. It says that they don't marry. It, evidently, they were given parameters. We also don't know what angels can do or not do. And we don't really even know for sure what's happening here. I'll tell you what Pastor Van believes. I believe that these are demon-possessed men. That's what I think the sons of God is referencing here. That the demons somehow lusted after the women of the earth that were very beautiful, and these men become demonically influenced, demonically possessed. I think that it's part of Satan's scheme to disrupt the human race, to destroy the human race, ultimately to try, as Satan does repeatedly in the history of Scripture, to disrupt the line of the Messiah. And he tries even up to the last minute, doesn't he? Remember when the... Uh, the uh, Women, the, the women, the babies were slaughtered in Judea, right? And, and, and so forth by Herod. Always, there's always a disruptive plan. Even Peter, one of the disciples, looked at Jesus and said, why don't you forget the cross part of this equation? Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, there's always a disruptive plan. And, and I suggest that that's what's happening here. The human, the earth is populating, the human race is growing, and it's become very corrupt. We can see the inference in the first two verses that there's a, a pornification of the culture, very visual, very image, very sinful, very sensual, lots of marrying going on, immorality, marriage is coming and going, a Hollywood-type atmosphere is what I'm picturing there, and even worse... And then secondly, the demonization of this society as you have these sons of God either taking on the bodies of humans and procreating through them this unusual race. I don't know. That's the closest I can come to. And I think that's kind of interesting. I I don't think it's worth spending too much time about. We just know that it's a very bizarre atmosphere of what's happening here, and it's a very corrupt atmosphere. There's also one other thing that you might find interesting, and it is this. In Hebrews chapter 13, in the New Testament, you don't have to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 13, there is a verse there that says that you, the body of Christ and Christians in that passage in the church there, had entertained angels unaware. You remember that phrase? And the idea there is, is that God has ministering angels, and we know that from other passages in Scripture as well, that angels literally can minister to human beings. And evidently from the Hebrews 13 passage, because God just gives us little snapshots of truth, from the Hebrews 13 passage where it says, you have entertained angels unaware, it would be a little bit like, remember in the stories coming up here in Genesis, in Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot, had his guests come to him, they were angels. But what did they look like? Humans, right? And the same thing in the Hebrews 13 passage, if you've entertained an angel unaware, the point is, and I've heard some just tremendous stories about this, and different people have stories uh, that I've heard, where someone's in a situation, and all of a sudden a person comes along, rescues them, they didn't know who the person was, the person just left, they never saw, and then they thought, you know what, that was an angel, but it looked just like a person. I was telling one story in the early service about 
Um, I know a story from up in northern Wisconsin where a Bible camp was on fire. The woods was on fire around a Bible camp way out in the, in the wilderness. And the camp directors and the neighbors were trying to beat back this fire, but it was obvious they were going to lose their property. It was going to be great loss. Of course, you can imagine their consternation, just the, the huge problem that they had. And all of a sudden, out coming through the woods was a big bulldozer with a man on the bulldozer, and he bulldozed down the pine trees and created a, a swatch through there so that the fire couldn't jump through, and he saved their property. And in the fog of the firefighting and the smoke that was happening, and when it all settled, they looked around for the bulldozer and the guy on the bulldozer, and it was gone. And they checked, they knew their neighbors well, but they checked around with everybody. Nobody had a bulldozer. Nobody recognized the guy who was on the bulldozer. What happened? Could very well be that God just sent one of his angels. Now, I don't know why God didn't just turn the wind and turn it a different way or start rain up, but God does whatever God wants to do. And I've heard of other stories where people have had angels come alongside them and they're convinced. Ask Carolyn McKenzie about her story. She's got a great one. And so it's possible that these sons of God were actually angels in a human form, that they were actually demon, fallen angels, okay, who actually came, you know, took on a form of a human and weren't possessed. Well, all that to just try to deal with this question mark of who are these sons of God. And there it is. Not so edifying so far. We have, though, a recognition of what that... The culture is certainly on a downgrade. Whenever they saw, they did. It, it gives the course speaking of this idea of a, of a uh, immoral, uh, selfish, sensual, totally undisciplined group of people who are marrying and marrying whoever they want and who totally focused on the beauty of the women, these Nephilim. And you have this sense of some kind of a demonization of the culture and the society. We don't know exactly what they are. We then read this powerful verse 5, don't we? And look what it says. And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It goes on to some more controversial verses, and I'll just reference it this morning. We may talk more about it next week. But he says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and that his heart was filled with pain. And then the Lord says, I'll wipe out mankind. We'll review those verses because he says it again in verse 13. I'm going to put an end to all people, he says to Noah. Did God change his mind? Can God make a mistake? What's happening here in the mind of God? I don't think that at all. God is immutable. He's unchanging. I think this is what we would call an anthropomorphism. It is the humanization of God so that we can understand. God knew exactly the consequences of Eve eating the fruit, right? He knew immediately that the downgrade had begun. And he knew it would end up with man self-destructing in his own sin. And that's why it says, and the heart of God was pained. We can understand that talk. God was grieved. He is an emotional God. And when he saw the sin and the decision-making that was going on, and the wholehearted embracing of this culture, of this pornification and this demonization, and then finally this complete degradation. How can you come up with a verse or a sentence? I would challenge you to do this. How could you write a sentence that more completely explains the base nature of this culture than verse 5? 
The wickedness on earth had become that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's like you can't come up with a stronger statement than that, can you? You talk about lost. You talk about sinful. You talk about broken. There it is. And that's why God says this pains my heart, but Noah, step back. This is it. Listen, the wages of sin is always death, isn't it? And isn't it interesting that the grace of God comes through, and we'll talk about this next week again, but it's going to be about 120 years before he sends the rain and floods the earth. And the whole time, what is Noah doing when he's building his boat? Preaching, preaching, preaching about coming judgment, righteousness, and self-control. And when it's all said and done, who's on the boat with him? Just Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and that's it. No converts after all that preaching. A wicked world that mocked him. I'm going to tell you this is a horrible story. Well, aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you built up? We got this base society that God's getting ready to wipe off the face of the earth. And this puzzling passage here. I think there's two things, though, we can be challenged by. I think, number one, this is a warning passage, isn't it? This is a warning passage to a sinful, wicked world. Is it any wonder that Dr. Dobson is weeping today? And when we look around, when we realize what's happening around us, it's horrible. It's a warning passage to a sinful world. You know that this is the time frame that is used in multiple ways to warn that at the end of the age, it will be wicked like at the time of Noah. That the behavior of these people is the kind of behavior that will be going on in the end of the age. And when we look around, how can we say that we are a people or a society that is any more righteous characteristically than this group of people? It's horrible. Secondly, though, I think not only is this a warning passage to sinful society that the judgment of God is coming. No, he's not going to send a flood, but 2 Peter 3 says he's going to send fire, and it is going to happen. But secondly, I think as we leave today, we need to remind ourselves that this is a wake-up call to a sleeping church. Not only is it a warning to a sinful people, but it's a wake-up call to a sleeping church. I want you to listen to me right now. Listen, Dr. Dobson's weeping on the radio, you know. It's, um, it's a reminder. It's not because the dollar broke down that he was crying and that people might not be able to send money to his great ministry out there in Colorado Springs. I don't think Dr. Dobson cares at all about money other than it is a facilitator of doing God's work. He loves the Lord. He loves the family. He loves this country, and he sees what's happening. This is a, a remarkable day in which we live, and this is a very important week for Americans. We love our country. It's not a perfect country. It's become a very unrighteous country. And I'll tell you something. Yes, there is a vacuum of, of quality leadership at almost all levels politically, it seems. And yes, we don't have a whole lot to choose from this year. But I'll tell you something. When you look at the two party platforms, and on Tuesday when you go to vote, the Democrat Party platform is a pro-death platform. Let's just look at one issue. 
And let's look at a candidate who's had an opportunity four different times to stand for the life of unborn babies. Now, listen to me. You say, well, that's just a single issue. Is there any other issue that matters? Is there any other issue that matters if you are the leader of a country and you say it's okay to kill unborn babies? People, what are we thinking about? What is wrong with our culture? We read stories in the Old Testament history about the Canaanites and they had their brass gods with their brass hands and they would light a big bonfire and they would bring their babies and set them up on these brass hands after they were red hot and sizzle their babies and they would offer them to the false gods and the Baals in baby infant sacrifice, laying them on the brass sizzling white hot hands. Lay the baby up there. And we say, how could they do that? I'll bet you we've killed more babies in our country than the Canaanites ever thought about killing. And when we have the most prominent, powerful position in our country, should be the most respected office in our land, and he won't vote at any level, at any time, in any way, to even gain an inch to keep from leaving leaving born babies who are still alive on the laundry room shelf to die, then you got issues. Now, John McCain, Barack Obama has issues. Let me tell you something. John McCain's got issues too. You can go call the ACLU if you want. I'm naming names. I don't care. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I'm going to tell you what God's word says. John McCain at least represents a party that has a platform that is the most pro-life platform there is that's ever been written for the Republican Party. I'll tell you something. This stuff matters. This stuff matters. You read Genesis chapter 1, and you see a society that's flushing down the drain. And we say, oh, it doesn't matter. We at least need to get our economy put back together. Our economy doesn't matter beans if the highest offices of our land are promoting the killing of our unborn children. We are base. We are, we are a, a degradable, degraded people at that point. We have no moral compass. And I'll tell you something, the two go together. And until we put somebody in office who will take a stand on righteousness and stand for the unborn and stand for what marriage really is and tell tell our public schools, you're not going to teach that to our kids, then God is never going to bless the economics of our country. It ain't going to happen. Go to Holland and see what happened there. Okay? The models are out there, okay? Look at Hitler's Germany and see what happened there because the people wanted to have bread. I don't mean to come across too angrily, but I'll tell you something. You've got to go vote, and you've got to vote for at least the lesser of the evils and at least vote for somebody who will take a stand for unborn babies and who will at least put a justice in the Supreme Court if he gets a chance that believes the Constitution means what it says. And if the church doesn't care about... Morality, and if the church doesn't care about unborn babies, who does? I'll tell you who. Nobody. And so we cannot be asleep at the wheel. We need to pray for these people. We need to pray. I was convicted that I have not been praying for the salvation of John McCain and Barack Obama. I don't know their religious background really very much, and who knows a politician I mean, I know a little bit about the church that Barack Obama went to because it received so much media attention. And I believe that he very much understood exactly what his pastor was saying. 
And I don't believe they preach a, a proper gospel there. Okay? I don't know about John McCain. He might be just as out to lunch. I have no idea. And like I said, it, it pains me to see our great country have no better leadership core to choose from than this. But the church needs to be praying, don't we? And we need to be praying for the salvation of the souls of these people, that their hearts would turn to God. And that God would spare us in his mercy and that there might be five righteous people in the cities across our country that God would turn away his wrath because his wrath is coming just as sure as the floodwaters are coming in Genesis chapter 6. You mark it down. Mark it down. And it bothers me that I can't weep, that I just get mad. And, I, you know, there's something wrong with me. I think it's called hardness of heart or love of this culture or something. But you know, as I refocus on Christ and as we renew our heart for the Lord, our hearts should be broken. Let's bow in prayer. Father, please forgive us for our callousness. Lord, we live in a, a horribly broken culture and society and there's so many ways that we let ourselves be sucked in. We sit there night after night and pay money to go out on a date to watch this kind of sinfulness for entertainment and we we know all about everybody who's doing all this stuff and talk about them and we model their makeup and model their hairdos and Lord, we're a mess here too. Forgive us for our carelessness, forgive us for our our concern that we be received and esteemed in a pagan culture and not be called irrelevant as a church, but help us to realize we're irrelevant as a church because we fit in with this world. So forgive us. We do, even as Alan prayed earlier, want to humble our hearts, seek forgiveness, and then you will, and we want to turn from our wicked ways, and then we'll find a forgiveness from you and find a renewal of your blessing. Father, I do pray for Barack Obama today. I pray for John McCain today, Lord. Whoever becomes the president, Father, may you grab their heart, may you turn their thinking towards you. May they recognize that there is a such thing as righteousness and there is a such thing as sinfulness and that there is only one true God and it's you. And may the secular, humanistic, immoral base of our culture hear the gospel somehow. And may we have a sweeping of revival through the church and of evangelistic fervor throughout the world. Father, help us as individuals to walk humbly before you. Help us to examine our hearts even further this morning that there be nothing between us and you. That we do not harbor a love for this world. That we would hate sin and love righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray.